It was a dream, a bucket list, so to speak. Brett Anderson was going to ride his motorcycle to Ushuaia. One day, perhaps in retirement when he had more time. Brett had a busy life, outdoor pursuits, hiking, running, motorcycling, and working as a commercial airline pilot, flying large passenger jets from country to country. He was active, physically fit, and busy. And then he got sick. And suddenly everything changed when he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. But rolling over and sort of accepting defeat is not Brett Anderson's style. In fact, that diagnosis fueled Brett to focus on his bucket list, Ushuaia by motorcycle. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicum. Ted Simon. Austin Venn. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoon. Helga Ferdowson. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Graham Jarvis. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Uh, my name is Brett Anderson. I live in Hot Springs, Virginia, and I am a um, commercial airline pilot. Brett, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Commercial airline pilot. So what kind of flying do you do? Um, I'm a captain on the 767 for United Airlines. I've been uh, with them for about coming up on 28 years now. Oh, wow. So what got you into flying? My father was a pilot for uh, United as well. And so I grew up with it. Um, I think I just always wanted to fly and uh, started taking lessons when I was 14 years old and um, soloed when I was 16, had all my commercial licenses by the time I was 20 and started flying for... uh, Small commuter airlines by the time I was 21. What's it like flying, you know, for a commercial airline when you're going from place to place, country to country? Um, if you like to travel, it's a great job. If you don't like to travel, it probably wouldn't be a good job for you. But uh, <laughs> I love flying. I love traveling. Well, if you didn't like to travel, you wouldn't have been getting that job, though, would you? No, I probably would have. Uh, if I'd liked flying but not traveling, I probably would have chosen something that was more just... Uh, day trips where you're home every night. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that the flying and the riding all kind of dovetail together because I like to travel and so, and to explore. And I'm I'm a curious person about other cultures and other countries. So the flying works well for that. And as well as the riding works well for that. Um, But, uh, and and the flying is what I would say is it's 99.9% well, boredom. <laughs> you sit up there, you, you you get into the air, you put the autopilot on and like a lot of the passengers, you sit there and wait for the aircraft to be uh, 
ready to be descended and landed. And then you take over manually again. But uh, for the most part, you're just sitting there monitoring systems and doing checks and making sure your navigation is on and everything like that. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the, um, the challenge every day can be a little bit different with weather and uh, dealing with passengers and dealing with just all sorts of different things. With 99.9% boredom, why choose that? What is it about that, 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 or, or what is it about that job that flying long distances where you're 99.9% bored? I know it's tongue in cheek, but as yeah. opposed to why not just stay on some small airline where you're up and down all the time? Um, well, the, uh, the truthful answer is that's a lot of work. When you get a little bit older, you enjoy the, uh, international flights, you, um, the schedules, it's mostly the schedules. I would work three on, four off, which I don't know many other jobs where you can do that kind of schedule and then go home. And unlike an office job or something, you don't have to take your work home with you. I shut down the engines, finish the checklist and I go home and I don't think about it until I go back to work. And it's not that I don't mm. enjoy it when I'm there, but I've got all that time off and I don't have to think about answering to any bosses or filling out any paperwork or anything. So, um, for me, it was always enjoyable and that we left in the early evenings. I do mostly the international flights over to Europe. We leave in the early evenings. Uh, we get over there in the uh, early morning, have about a 24 to 30 hour layover, enough time to get out and enjoy a little bit of the city, wherever you are, have a dinner. And then uh, the next morning you come home. So you're really only gone a little over 48 hours and then you're home. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's three calendar days technically, but, uh, about 48 hours away from home. Oh, so it's, it's a pretty sweet setup then really for, for a yeah, job. Yeah, for right? the most part, I'd say, yeah, it's, 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 uh, you know, pretty, pretty laid back life. And when you're senior enough to hold those kind of routes, that's the, what, that's what most people like to do. The up and down stuff was fun when I was younger, but as I get older, uh, it was nice to not uh, do so much up and down because. When you're doing the domestic flights, uh, the type of stuff on the smaller planes, like the 737s, you're in and out of the weather, you're dealing with delays, you're dealing with, uh, you know, thunderstorms in the summer, snowstorms in the winter, uh, long days. Sometimes you don't even get home on the day that you were supposed to get home because of the weather and, and delays and reroutes and things like that. So what is it like doing that technical part of landing and, and sort of how does that correlate if at all to riding a motorcycle um landing is what i call a a bit of skill and a bit of luck in that those tires the wheels on the aircraft are so far behind and below you you know about where they are but every single landing is whether it's going to be a, a 100 percent smooth landing or not or maybe just a little bit of a bump not saying it's not, it's unsafe or anything like that, but you, if you've probably experienced on planes, sometimes the land is just a little bit harder than others. And, and a lot of that is just a little bit of luck and, uh, knowing the aircraft that you fly. And I think riding can be that way too, knowing the bike that you ride and, and being smooth and getting things down, whether you're on road or off road really getting it dialed in is a lot like flying and that you've, it, it takes experience. And, and sometimes, you know, when you're riding off road and, and it's, the going gets rough, sometimes there's a little bit of luck involved. <laughs> that is, that is so true. And I'm just trying to think of what it was. I think, uh, I think it was Chris Birch that was saying something in one of our rider skills, um, 
about uh, luck being a part of it. He said, there's, there's uh, I think he said he broke it down to three components and he, and he said in the one, the, the, the wild card, I guess is, is luck is the same thing you're describing there, but I'm curious about the stress level. So like, you know, there's a certain amount of stress level or heightened sensitivity, I guess we could say, you know, when riding a motorcycle, if you don't like the word stress, is that similar to what you, you get when you're landing or, or taking off with a plane? Uh, yeah. And when you're taking off and landing, those are probably your two uh, most critical times in an aircraft, uh, because if something goes wrong, you don't have a lot of time to deal with it. So when you're taking off, let's say if you lose an engine, you've got to make an instant decision. Uh, do, do I have the room to reject? And we've got a certain speed beyond which we don't reject the la- the uh, takeoff, or do I continue? And then if I continue, I've got to deal with that engine failure. I've got to be right on the controls and right on it right now. And sometimes be making some very quick decisions. And the same with landing. If things go wrong when you're close to the ground, you just don't have as much time to deal with them as if when you're when you're 35,000 feet in the air and you've got plenty of time to deal with a problem. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's similar with riding. The faster you're going, the less time you have to deal with something than if you're just tootling along real slow on a, a country road and you're going 35 miles an hour and, and your tire blows out. Yeah, you can probably pull it over, not not without too much problem. But if you're cruising along on the highway going, you know, 70 miles an hour and your tire blows out, you got to do something right now. Mm-hmm. Is, is it an added stress having all the passengers as opposed to riding by yourself? No, um, I've always said that if the pilot gets there safely, the passengers are going to get there safely. <laughs> so I think... That's, I've always, and that's one big difference that I've said between, uh, say, a, a profession where you have lives in your hand like a doctor. The doctor's own life is not in his hands. It's someone else's life. Whereas in the aircraft, the pilot's own life is in his hands as well as all the passengers. Now, mm. I, I'm always mindful of my duty to all my entire passengers, uh, my entire uh, population on the aircraft, the passengers, the crew, everybody, and my um, philosophy is that I treat them as, as almost as my children, not in a way as I look down or, or treat them like children, but I take care of them as if, as if they were my children. I think of them as my charges and I need to make sure everybody gets to where they're going without harming a single hair on their head. Just a minute ago, you said that there was a little bit of luck involved with landing, which I'm sure made a lot of people's stomach go when you said that. But you think you just redeemed yourself by saying, well, by pointing and out. When that- I say there's, when I say there's a little bit of luck involved, I mean that's only the not for a safe landing, but just is it going to be one of those landings where you can't even t- tell that you touched down, or yeah. is it going to be one where you just feel a bump? No, no, I, I I get that, but but you know what it is for flying. For some people, they get very right. nervous about it. And you mentioned anything to do exactly. with luck, and it's like you know. I mean, there's so many, and that's one thing I was actually thinking between the difference between flying a plane and riding a motorcycle. I mean, obviously, the with the obvious difference, you know, the motorcycle being on the ground, but you have a lot more, a lot more safety um, uh, systems in an airplane, a lot more uh, and a lot more rehearsal for that sort of thing than what we do on average for a motorcycle. That's true. And I think um, in that way, there's there's a, quite a few pilots who actually ride motorcycles. And I think most of us take our attitude that we approach flying over to our riding. Like I know when I go ride, I do a, a walk around on the, on the motorcycle. I just inspect everything, you know, it takes two minutes, 
make sure there's no leaks, make sure the uh, tires are in good shape, make sure they're inflated properly and just take a good look at everything. And that's what we do before every flight. One of the uh, pilots always does a walk around on the aircraft and uh, same thing. You're looking for leaks, you're looking for tire pressure, you're looking for big, obvious things. So I guess for you, that's not a paranoia thing. That's just common sense. I mean, you've got the opportunity to check. Of course you would check just like you would with a plane. Exactly. Because both flying and riding could kill you really quick if something Mm -hmm. goes wrong. And there's, it takes two minutes to take a look around uh, the the motorcycle uh, versus 10 minutes on the aircraft. And and we do it every time on the aircraft. So why not do it every time on the motorcycle? Mm -hmm. Do you have your, uh, a plane as well that you fly, you know, that you keep at home? I do not. Flying's a very expensive hobby, so I've never <laughs> taken it up as a hobby. Motorcycles are, as much as we complain that they're expensive, they're much cheaper than flying. You said you did your solo, I think you said your solo at 16. So yes. at, at 16 years old, you're obviously really into flying. Where did you get into motorcycling? Um, I, I had friends that rode as a kid, and when I was young... We, my father, I'm trying to remember, we, we, we got an older, I think it was a Honda 80, uh, some sort of Honda 80. And I, I rode it around just in our little neighborhood. We had a cul-de-sac and I would ride that around. And then we started going out with our friends. So I grew up in San Diego, um, Northern, Northern County, it was called, it was a little place called Escondido. And we used to take that 80 as well as my friend's dirt bikes and we go out to the desert. We go out to Borrego or uh, the Salton Sea and we go ride, ride, ride bikes out there. And so I grew up kind of riding dirt bikes out there. And then as I got um, into high school and got my driver's license, I got my motorcycle license back then. And I was able to, I had a, an enduro bike and so I rode it to high school every day instead of uh, riding my bicycle, which I had done up until then. And I, I had always uh, just, I don't know why, I just always... I've always been attracted to things that go. If you can drive it, I, I, I like it. Boats, planes, motorcycles. I haven't driven a train yet, but I'd love to do that someday. <laughs> and did you continue to ride right, right from high school, right until now? I, so as I got into driving, of course, as many teenage boys do, we, I, I was into cars and I liked cars. So I, I think I, at some point, and I, I don't really remember when I sold the motorcycle in my teen years, probably around 16 or 17. And then, uh, um, drove cars as when I got my first car was probably around 17 or 18 years old and, uh, enjoyed cars for a while. Um, I went to college and, uh, didn't have a motorcycle through college, uh, moved to Germany where I got my, uh, which, which is where I had my first airline job. So I lived in Berlin, Germany for two years. And, um, when I came back, I met a girl, got married and it wasn't until I was about 30, 31 that I got a motorcycle again. Mm-hmm. And then I bought a, uh, 1150 GS. Did you end up using it for travel or, or was this just a round town bike? Both. So I used it, uh, I, I bought it. A friend of mine had talked to me. I didn't, I was, I don't think I was even aware of the GS at one point. And then, um, because I had been out of motorcycling for a while and a friend of mine said, Oh, I really would love to get one of these um, it's BMW and you can go anywhere on it and you can go off road and on road. And I thought that would be really fun. And so I looked it up and I thought that's, that's a neat bike and went and looked at one and I bought it and I ended up, uh, initially 
just riding it around uh, around town, getting used to it because it was a bigger bike than anything I'd ever ridden before. And then started doing some fire roads in the mountains. At this point, I was living in Virginia. So doing some of the fire roads in Virginia. And then I started taking some trips on it. Uh, my father lived down in Georgia. I think that was one of my first longer trips I did, just riding the highways down there. And then actually ended up taking it across the country a couple of times, mostly on road though, but I didn't do a whole lot of off-roading on it at that point. Mm, and then that's it. You're into adventure motorcycling. Pretty much. Yeah. I was, I was hooked. I love traveling, like I said, and, uh, doing it on the motorcycle, doing it at ground level was, uh, just fascinating to me. I loved the fact that when you ride up to a, a gas station in some state that's, you know, hundreds of miles from where you live and someone sees your license plate and they say, did you ride that thing all the way from Virginia? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. But nobody ever says that when you're in a car, nobody comes up to you and says, did you drive that thing all the way from Virginia? Yeah. I like the, the interaction that you get on a motorcycle. There's always some guy who likes to come and talk to you and says, oh, I used to ride a motorcycle when I was young and wants to talk to you about the bike. And I enjoy that interaction. I was thinking it at first before we started to talk that being a pilot flying from country to country, you get the opportunity to fly into a country and then maybe rent a motorcycle and go for a ride. But from the way you described it, maybe that isn't the possibility. Um, no, you can. It just depends on your layover length and where you are and if you can find one to rent. But uh, I actually did that in uh, Portugal. I was in uh, Porto and I had seen on a previous layover a motorcycle parked on the side of the road that had a sticker on it for a rental. And so I looked it up and found out and the, the rental was actually very um, reasonably priced. And so I ended up renting the bike. An interesting story, I put diesel gas in that bike on accident. How did you do that? <laughs> so in, um, it was, this was a, a 1200 GS, uh, which is what I had at home at the time. And uh, in Portugal, and I don't speak Portuguese, the gasoline is, uh, I think it's gasolina and diesel, which I had always thought for some reason was a, a uh, universal world word. I thought diesel was universal, but it's not. It's gasolio in Portuguese. So they're both very similar, gasolina and gasolio. And mm. the other thing was that in the U.S., the diesel, um, What's nozzle is always green everywhere I've been. And the other nozzles are always black colored. Over there, it was the opposite. So I pulled up uh, just, it was just before I was returning the rental. I'd gone riding down the Duro River Valley and I came back and I needed to fill, leave it with a full tank. So I pulled up to the gas station and I'm looking at both of them. And I'm thinking, well, I think that one is the gasoline. And so I put it in the tank and I, you couldn't, for some reason, I didn't smell the diesel like you normally would. It seemed okay. Uh, I couldn't smell anything out of the, out of the ordinary. I filled it up and within about a half a mile of leaving that gas station, it started running rough. I thought, oh man, I think I put the wrong gas in it. And so luckily it was only about a mile more to the um, rental place. And when I pulled up, I told the guy, I said, hey, this thing's running funny. And I think I might've put diesel in it. And he looks at me and goes, oh no, you are the third American that has done this. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, if, if us Americans keep doing this, there might be, you know, an understanding problem. So maybe it would be helpful if you told us, put the black colored nozzle in it or the, uh, the green colored nozzle in it that says 
gasolina and not this one, because it seems to be the something that we're all making the same mistake doing. Thankfully, it didn't ruin the motorcycle. I think they charged me an extra 250 euros to flush the tank and do everything. And that was fine. It was my mistake. So I, I said, yeah, that's fine. That's better than buying a whole new engine because I had visions that it was going to cost me thousands. Yeah. No, I think it doesn't yeah. do, I, I think that way usually doesn't do any damage. It's when you do it the other way, yes. when you get a diesel engine and you put it in gasoline, that's when you, that's when you, yes. you look at some damage. But, um, boy, yeah. you know, I can understand that would be very upsetting, especially at the end of a rental where you, where you know, you're, you kind of held totally responsible. You basically, you just hand them your wallet and yeah. say, can you leave me something when you're done? Absolutely. And, and. I remember thinking, well, my, my fairly cheap rental went from a cheap rental to a very expensive rental. <laughs> I, right. I, think, I think it had only been like 75 euros to rent it for the day, which over in Europe is a bargain. I mean, I, I looked at renting a bike in Switzerland once and it was going to be 300 euros for one day. And I said, no, nah, I'm not doing for that. For one day. Wow. And is that the only time that you, you've done the fly and rent thing? Um... I think I did it one more time. I, I'm trying to remember. It was, it was years back in uh, Munich and I went riding uh, up into the hills there for the day. That was fairly expensive. But yeah, like you said, a lot of times with only a 25 to 30 hour layover, you just don't have the time. Like to, when I did it in Portugal, I remember I got to the hotel around 10 in the morning. And if you wanted to get any riding in at all, you had to forego your normal nap that you do after an all night flight. So I just got changed, went straight down to the rental place, got the bike, went out rent riding. I do remember being very tired on the way back to the uh, rental place that evening. And that might've had something to do with why I put diesel in it because I was just mm. very, very tired. And as soon as I got back to the hotel, it was probably only 6 p.m. I was in bed. I was just done for the day and getting rest for the next to fly home the next day. Now, some of our um, layovers, we do have if it's over a holiday or if it's a seasonal flight, like some places we don't fly daily to. So you might actually have 48 hours and then you would have a lot more time if you can find a place. In fact, once again in Portugal, uh, in Lisbon at this time, I had a, uh, a Yamaha FJR 1300 that I actually had stored in Lisbon. So I did a trip with a 48 hour layover and took my wife and then she and I went riding, uh, and spent the night in another town uh, on that layover. But that was on my own bike, not a rental. Right. And that bike you would leave stored at different places? Yeah. So I had bought it and uh, originally I bought it because I realized it would be a lot cheaper to buy an older used bike. This was a 2003 FJR, so almost 20 years old when I bought it. And um, keep it for a little while, store it in places, then sell it at the end. Then it would be to rent bikes over and over. So, uh, I bought it in Ireland. I had ridden it with my wife around the island. And then I, uh, took a ferry by myself down to, um, Spain and rode it to Lisbon. Then I had had it stored in Lisbon for a while, thinking I was going to be doing, uh, quite a few Lisbon trips and that I could just take it out for day rides when I was there. Um, which ended up not really being the case because, uh, at that point, I think we were right in the middle. COVID, COVID hit, uh, not too long after that. So the bike ended up sitting in storage for a while. So while you're doing these different rides and, and after you've gotten back into riding, is there a big trip on your mind as you're going through life thinking that one day I'm going to do this big trip? The trip uh, to Ushuaia has always been on my mind and something on my radar that I've wanted to do. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So in your mind, what is that trip? It was the bucket list trip. It was the one that I wanted to do. I wanted to take five or six months and uh, go from Virginia, from my home, all the way down through Central and South America to the tip of South America was the goal. And then and then ship the bike home from somewhere down there. And it was just one of those dream trips where I thought, you know, you'll be crossing borders, you'll be doing, you know, seeing different cultures, uh, completely different from everything we have here in the U.S. And and this is sort of a retirement thought? It was something I had always wanted to do, but never been able to find the time because uh, the airline, it was just hard to get the time, that kind of time off from the airline. So, um I didn't really want to wait to retirement, but it was starting to look more and more like I was going to have to, to have the kind of time you needed to do that. It's always sort of worrisome, isn't it? Waiting to retirement because, um, of course we're older when we retire and it just seems so far off. And, yes. and also there's all the other added things to think about, especially I think as you approach that, because you start to age and you start to feel what aging is. And then you think, well, I'm, I'm am I, what shape am I going to be in retirement? Exactly. And, and I, I wanted to do it while I was still young. In fact, um, you know, I had originally wanted to do it in my, uh, late thirties, early forties, but again, just could never find the time. And my kids were still at home then. So, uh, couldn't do it then. Um, couldn't take off and just leave the whole family and everything. Well, you did end up heading out on a trip, but, um, what happened before this was you, you found you had a health issue. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in, um, let's say August of 21, I started coming down with, uh, getting, feeling just sick, coughing, um, having some breathing issues. Uh, it was originally diagnosed as walking pneumonia. And of course they gave me some antibiotics. I said, go home, take these. You'll be fine in a little bit. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't get better. I went back to the doctor and they gave me some more powerful antibiotics. Still didn't get better. Um, it was when I was on a trip, uh, a work trip that I realized something was really wrong because I was just having trouble. Normally I'm a pretty fit person. I run, I would run every day. I lifted weights. I was stayed in good shape. And, uh, I found myself breathing heavily, like really out of breath, just walking up the jet bridge from the airplane. I'd get to the top of the jet bridge. I had to sit down and rest because I, I just couldn't breathe. And I thought, this is just not right. I'm, I'm not feeling good. And I, I've got one of those uh, smart watches with all the, you know, heart rate monitor and all that stuff on it. It's got an oximeter on it. I remember looking at the oximeter and seeing, well, and at that, at that point, I didn't know much about what normal oxygen levels were, but I noticed it was in the high eighties. I thought, I wonder if that's normal or not. And so I looked on my phone and looked up what is normal oxygen levels and said, should be in the high nineties. And I thought, well, that's, that's not right. And the oximeter that's measuring the oxygen level in your blood somehow from the watch. Yes, it measures your um, blood oxygen saturation, which for most normal healthy people is 95% and higher. Um, when it gets into the 80s, that's when it's concerning because your organs start having, uh, start not having enough oxygen to function properly. Mm. So I think mine was probably 88, 89, which is still, I'd say it's the very, very lower edge of normal. If you're looking at that, uh, anything below 88 is where they say you should go see a doctor or go to a hospital. Um, so I think mine at that time was 88, 89, 90, maybe. 
And I, it, at the point, at the time, like I said, I was, this was all new to me. So I didn't know much about it other than what the internet told me. Um, so I went to my doctor again at this point and he took a chest x-ray and he looked at it and he said, you're going to the hospital. And he sent me right to the emergency room and they, um, they originally thought I had COVID, but I had tested myself and I didn't have COVID. And, uh, so they tested me and didn't believe me and nope, you don't have COVID. Ended up being in the hospital five days. Um, they diagnosed me with a thing which has since changed called eosinophilic pneumonia. Eosinophils are white blood cells, which are, um, the guardians of your body. They're part of your immune system. And these were, for some reason with this eosinophilic pneumonia, they attack your, your lungs. They think your lungs are a foreign substance. So. Yeah, and why would it do that? They don't know. They, it's, it's an autoimmune thing. And there's so much that they, medical science still does not know about autoimmune diseases. They're just now starting to find out. And I've been diagnosed now with four different things. Uh, they keep changing it. And then they finally just decided it's unclassified, but it's an autoimmune, uh, something going on with my immune system where my body and my white blood cells are attacking my own lungs. And they don't know why it started. They don't know exactly what it is. Um, all they can do at this point and, and with most, most autoimmune diseases is treat the symptoms because they still don't know enough about it to know what causes it. But that has since morphed into a thing called, um, pulmonary fibrosis. And pulmonary fibrosis is basically another way of saying your lungs are getting scarred. And as your lungs get, get scarred, the little air sacs in your lungs, the alveoli, become hard and brittle and they can't transfer air or oxygen anymore to your bloodstream, which becomes a problem. And that if you don't get enough oxygen in your bloodstream, all your muscles and your organs aren't getting enough oxygen. Wow. going to take just a quick break. I've got three things that I want to tell you about. When we come back though, we've got a lot more to the story. You're going to want to hear this. Stay with us. A few years back, in fact, it was, it was a number of years back, it was 2019, March of 2019, we had a couple on the show that had traveled the world two up on their KTM 640 adventure. It was Heidi and David Winters. Now on that trip, David broke his wrist and through a series of events, one being that he was the only one with, that was able to ride the motorcycle. But in any case, he had to ride his bike with this broken wrist or while it was healing. And it was very frustrating for him because he couldn't find any sort of throttle lock the, to give him relief. Nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to work well, at least not the way that they saw it. So he had a long, painful ride for quite a while. And it got him thinking a lot about a throttle lock. He thought, this is so simple. There has to be a better way, a better design. So when they got back from their trip, one of the things David did was he started searching around for the ultimate throttle lock, but he couldn't find anything that really satisfied what he was after. So he decided to design his own throttle lock, reinvent it, so to speak, which is what he did. He founded the Atlas Throttle Lock. Now, in case you aren't aware of what a throttle lock is, it's basically it holds your throttle in position as you ride. Great for those long stretches of road or actually a lot of times 
It allows you to loosen your grip, relax your hand and your arm, your forearm. It makes a huge, huge difference for you. And just gives you a, a little bit of mobility there where you can actually, you know, maneuver your hand basically without having to keep it locked in that one position. So back to the Atlas throttle lock. The end result was David was inspired by this, by this problem he had on the trip to design this from his and Heidi's trip around the world. And what they made was this absolutely stunning, in my opinion, two-button throttle lock that works unlike any other that I've come across. And really, I always like to say it's Swiss watch. It reminds me of a Swiss watch or, or an Apple product, something that, that's like really high quality, but not only just high quality, but it works exactly like you would think it should work. It's got two buttons on it. Both of them have a firm, positive feedback. One is for engage, one is for disengage, and you can adjust it. You don't have to disengage to adjust your throttle lock. You just leave it engaged and you adjust it however you want. If you go up a hill, you add some more throttle down a hill, let a little off. And and the other nice thing about this is they've designed it in such a way that it can be easily swapped from one bike to another. But look, at go have a look at their website and, and see what you think yourself. It's called atlasthrottlelock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen. That's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. And I think we all agree that that makes good sense. Cyclops makes all kinds of LED lighting for all kinds of motorcycles, including CAN bus plug-and-play systems. Now, if you're having trouble finding a spot to mount auxiliary lights, which I ran into with my bike, sometimes it's very difficult to find a spot where they're not going to get hit or smacked or they don't cover some other light when you install them. Have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch auxiliary lights. These are seriously powerful auxiliary lights that just punch a hole in the darkness and command attention during the day. Now, I have these on my bike, and when I first turned them on, I tell you, I was shocked at the intensity of them. It's just incredible to get that much power out of a small light. Now, I've been running them for several years now, and they work beautifully. So long-term, they withstand everything, including the odd thump that they've received in, in my case. Not to mention, they look great as well. And they even have a model that has an orange ring light around the spotlight itself, so it's built into it. And that adds sort of a unique look to it, also grabs attention because you can turn those rings on by themselves or have them come on with the light. And, and that, again, commands attention. It makes people look at the bike because it looks different. And that's what you need to do with, with drivers to make sure that they see us. Cyclops has loads more lighting products for us riders. And by the way, Cyclops was founded and is run by a family, the family that started it. And they're also a family of riders. So when you deal with Cyclops, you're dealing with fellow riders. I really like that. Cyclopsadventuresports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. You know, we often take things for granted. I mean, you look at a pair of foot pegs, you think, okay, so you add a little width, maybe some teeth, and there you go. You got a better foot peg. Well, that may be true for some foot pegs in the market. Maybe that's all they go for. But if you want real foot pegs, then you'll want to look at the pegs that IMS products are making. IMS began way back in 1976. And over the past 47 years, they've learned a lot. Much of that has been from supplying off-road racers with the most durable products possible. And now all that expertise comes to us in a line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. All of these foot pegs are made with cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They all go through a certified heat treating process. They're built in the USA and they come with a lifetime warranty. Now, a company that's been around for 47 years knows how to offer a lifetime warranty. They do it by supplying superior quality products. 
It's not just how they're made as well. It's how they're designed. And that's what you get when you buy IMS products, foot pegs for your bike. You know, when you see a bike sitting there with IMS products, foot pegs on it, you're seeing a bike of a serious rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. So, like, is there some sort of light at the end of the tunnel for this? Are they telling you that they can do something with it? Unfortunately not. So they, there is no cure for pulmonary fibrosis. And when any damage that is done to your lungs is irreversible. So for instance, my lung um, capacity right now is at about 50% of normal. And my ability of my lungs to transfer oxygen, which is another uh, thing they look at uh, to my bloodstream is only at about 33% of normal right now. So I don't have that ability to get the oxygen that I used to have. And, uh, and it will never, the best that they can hope for is to stop it or at least slow it down. Um, but for pretty much everybody who has this disease, it, it, it's a terminal disease. So there is no, no cure for it. Now, some people, everybody's body is different. Some people will last. 10, 15 years with it. Some people will decline and pass away in two to five years. It really just, it depends on so many factors, your body. Also, every every time if I catch any kind of respiratory thing, whether it's COVID or just the flu or anything that goes into my lungs, that has the uh, possibility of triggering further permanent declines in my uh, lung capacity. So I have to be very careful about that. So that, that would be worse. Like if you get a cold or something, that makes it worse because your immune system, again, goes out to attack that on top of what you're already experiencing. Well, yes and no, in that the drugs that I'm on, um, for instance, I'm on prednisone and I'm on another one called Celsept, which are all anti-inflammatory drugs, and they're also all meant to suppress the immune system. So it's kind of a catch-22 in that you want to suppress the immune system because the immune system is what's doing damage to your lungs. But at the same time, now your immune system isn't protecting you from these germs and these viruses like it normally would. So I usually didn't get sick very much before I got really sick. I mean, I didn't catch colds. I didn't catch the flu very often. I had a pretty robust immune system. But now, because of all the drugs I'm on that are suppressing my immune system, my immune system does not protect me from those viruses and those things floating around in the air. So for me, and this was where the trip came in as well, I was coming back and forth on airplanes on this trip because I had doctor's appointments that I still had to go to in the States. I had, I could, there's no way I could carry six months of these pills that I had to take with me um, and insurance wouldn't dole out six months at a time. So I had to come home to renew those as well. And all of a sudden being on a plane, even wearing a mask was a danger to me. It, it just, it started being where I, I started thinking and my doctors started saying, we don't want you in these situations anymore because you can't afford any further declines. Mm-hmm. 
because of the drugs are, are actually holding back your ability to fight at a thing that you're going to get. Wow, that's exactly. that really is a, a catch twenty two. And you're referring to this trip that we're, we're going to talk about your motorcycle trip. But so when you when you get this news when it, when it sort of works its way down to this, what do you think of? What, like how do you evaluate your life at that point? Yeah. Um, so at that point, I knew enough about the disease and educated myself about it to know that it was a terminal disease eventually. I didn't know how long I had and nobody does. So what I wanted to do was to fulfill some bucket list things. And one of them was this uh, big trip to South America. And I knew that being physically able to do it, to, to handle the bike, to handle the rigors of overland travel, was very important. So I knew that I needed to do it earlier on in this, um, um, with this disease rather than later, because I knew later I might not have the physical ability to. So I made the decision to just start doing things as soon as I could do them while I was able rather than waiting. What about work? You mentioned that just climbing up to the plane was enough to make you have to sit down to regain your breath and, right. and get a rest. What happened with work? Well, right now I'm on permanent disability, but initially, so initially when they thought this thing was just a, a pneumonia that I would get over, and I did, I, I, I improved for a while before I hit a plateau, but I improved enough to go back to work and I was able to fly. Um, and it wasn't until about six months after I initially got sick before they diagnosed me with the pulmonary fibrosis. Um, so up until that point, I was still flying. But when I went for my physical in, I believe it was this last July, every six months as a pilot, we have to have a physical uh, that the FAA mandates with a flight surgeon. And so I went into my flight surgeon and he said, well, at this point, we have to send everything off to the FAA. We have to defer a decision on uh, whether or not you're able to fly. And the FAA being a government agency took <laughs> took a good six months to even make a decision. Meanwhile, I was out of work. Uh, I couldn't fly without the physical. So as it ended up being, it ended up being a good decision on their part because then I started declining again. And I got to a point where even going to high elevations was not possible for me. And the cabin altitude on an aircraft that's at 34, 35,000 feet is not a sea level. It's at, there's a certain ratio. So when you're at 35,000 feet on the plane I fly, the cabin's at about 6,000 feet. Well, for me uh, now, even going to Denver, I have to be on oxygen. Well, you can't fly a plane being on oxygen all the time because you risk mm. hypoxia and hypoxia clouds your judgment as well as uh, makes you unable to function well. So right now I'm not flying. And have you, because I think you were starting a, an outdoor store. You were, you were working on putting together a plan for uh, doing an outdoor store. Was outdoors a big part of you and, and what you did in life? It was. My wife and I love hiking and being outside. My wife is from uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, so she grew up in the mountains. And uh, I grew up in Southern California, um, mountain biking and hiking, as well as riding motorcycles. And um, uh, it's always been a big part of both of our lives. And this outdoor store, uh, outdoor outfitter that we were looking at starting, this was all just a concept we had come up with and a name and everything before I got sick, but that's all been put on the back burner because starting a business requires a lot of time and a lot of money. And at this point, without knowing how much time I have left, I don't know that I want to 
spend my time starting up a business and putting the effort into that. Yeah. I mean, it must really change your perspective on, on everything. What, what's on your bucket list? Um, I'd like to finish the ride and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. But as we talked about at the very beginning, I had to stop right in the middle of it. I would like to finish the ride someday to Ushuaia and uh, get that done. That's probably my biggest bucket list thing. Was your bucket list all motorcycle? Um, strangely enough, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love riding. I don't know what else to say other than, uh, yeah, it, it's the it's the motorcycle and it's the travel. I just I love travel and I love seeing other cultures and doing it from the seat of a motorcycle is my favorite way to do it. Mm-hmm. You feel more connected with everything. You think this is the time then to do your, and I'm, I'm going back here to when you're being diagnosed and when you come up with the idea of this is the time to do the trip. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I knew it was the time at, at the, at that time when I first was diagnosed, I was still flying. So I was thinking, what do I do with this? Do I, do I apply for a leave of absence? I knew the airline was a bit short on pilots. So getting a leave of absence was going to be very difficult. Um, as it ended up and, and you got to find the silver lining and everything when they took away my medical and I couldn't fly, I was still getting paid. So I thought, well, what a better time to do it than when I'm getting full pay and, and I'm not working. So I told my wife, I said, you know, I, I want to do this and I'm thinking about it. What, what do you think? And she was fully in support of it. She's very supportive and she wanted me, she'd actually been pushing me to do this trip for quite a while, knowing that it was a bucket list and wanted me to do it before I got too old to do it before I even got sick. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I, I think now's the time to do it before while I'm still physically able. And um, yeah, so that ended up being um, the silver lining and that I had the time and had the income to do it. What was your plan? So initially I wanted to finish, I, I really actually, and I love Europe as well. So I wanted to see Europe see more. I've seen a lot of Europe, but I wanted to see it from a motorcycle. I'd done a little bit of riding in Europe. As I talked about earlier, I had this FJR 1300 that I bought over there. And I always like to say any motorcycle can be an adventure motorcycle. It's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. So I took the FJR. Um, it was in Lisbon at this time. I decided I wanted to go over there for about a month to two months and ride around Europe. And that's what I ended up doing. I rode it through, I think, 12 different countries in Western Europe, mostly Western Europe. Um, and then before I had to be home, I had some doctor's appointments and things like that, that I had to be home for. But, um, and then the, because this was summer, it was still too early. I I knew I wanted to leave for South America in the fall. Um, cause I don't, I don't like the heat. So I wanted to skip the Central America summer and Mexico summer heat. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I figured fall would be perfect to hit, uh, to hit South America for their summer. And, uh, so I, I had all of our summer to, uh, occupy myself. So yeah, I took off for Europe in July and, uh, rode, uh, rode Europe for about a month and a half. And then you come back and you're, you're headed South. You did, mm-hmm. you didn't ride your, your normal bike. Did you buy a bike just for this trip? I bought a Touareg, the new Touareg 660. Um, my normal bike. So I had two other adventure bikes at the time. I had an AJP PR7, 
which is a small uh, Portuguese single cylinder. Uh, it's about a 610. It's an old Husqvarna engine. Um, and I had a, a 1200 GS, a 2018 rally. And the GS I'd taken uh, was, was a great bike. I'd always planned on using it for South America because I want something big enough to ride comfortably on a highway at high speeds as well as that I could take on some off-road. I, I hadn't planned on doing any really difficult off-road down there, but, you know, fire roads, things, dirt roads, things like that. And the GS had always proven to be a trustworthy bike. But at this point, I was a little wary of taking that heavy of a bike because I knew I wasn't, I wasn't quite as strong as I was. Mm-hmm. And picking it up and, and dealing with it off-road wasn't something I wanted to do. And I was looking around, I actually bought uh, a used Tenere 700 and owned it for about a month and then just decided it's a perfectly good bike. It just wasn't the bike for me. Um, so I sold it and uh, still looking around at what was out there, was thinking about maybe a DR650 or something like that. And um, then the Touareg came out and I read some reviews on it. The reviews were all very good, uh, off-road, on-road. And then a friend of mine bought one and he really liked it. And that kind of pushed my decision. I thought, well, I think I'm going to get that. It's, it was about, I want to say it was a good 120, 130 pounds less than the GS and oh, wow. uh, a little bit thinner, a little more, a little more nimble, uh, not, not as much power, but I didn't need, didn't need a hundred and what, what, 2,535 horsepower that the GS has. Just didn't need all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Touareg just seemed like a a really good fit for me. And, and I'm really glad it's now my new favorite bike to ride. Oh, nice. Well, I, any concerns about the Touareg as far as parts and repair? Because it's not a popular there was. bike. Yeah, there was. Uh, Aprilia, you know, fairly small manufacturer. But if you really look at it, I, I looked, did a little research. Aprilia is owned by uh, Piaggio, which is a scooter maker. And if you look at Piaggio... They're the fourth largest motorcycle or two-wheel um, vehicle maker in the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, there's scooters everywhere in Central and South America. There's got to be ways to get, you know, dealers down there. And, and I ended up, you know, having the bike service in Costa Rica at a Piaggio dealer. Um, but I also talked to um, a couple of the dealers around and uh, the big one being a, a dealer called AF1 Racing in Austin, Texas is probably one of the bigger Aprilia dealers. And I talked to them and they said, Hey, we carry a pretty big supply of parts and anything you need anywhere in the world, we can mail it to you. And I thought, well, I'm just going to take a chance. I like the bike. It's a new bike. It seems to be, you know, there, there's a, a few people have had some problems, but for the most part, that 660 engine had already been tried out and tested on their one of the street bikes, the Tuano, and it seems like they've got all the bugs worked out of it. And this is a D-rated version. It's less horsepower than the one. I think the Tuano is running close to 100 horsepower. And this is, what, 70, 75, something like that at the most. So it's not it's not working the engine as hard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. You know, I mean, part of the adventure is something goes wrong. I figured, well, that's part of it. And I'll, I'll deal with it when it happens. When you approach the... Mexican border, you had some apprehensions. What were they and why? You know, it's, it's funny because I've always been one to say, don't listen to everything everybody else says or that the, that the media tell, you know, that, that not the media. Um, 
the grapevine. The, the, the grapevine, the internet says about the dangers of travel because I've traveled all over the world as an airline pilot. I've gone to the, the uh, favelas in, in Rio when people told me not to, which is this, basically the slums. And I've never had a problem. I've found people, 99.9% of the people are good in this world. But for some reason, I got it in my mind that the border was so dangerous, probably from reading too many things online and that the cartels had people watching the border looking for marks, you know, looking for someone whose motorcycle they wanted to take or whose car they wanted to take, that they had watchers. And and that made me nervous. I don't know why. And then talking to some guy who was, I think I was at my last hotel before the border crossing in Texas in a little town. And I was talking to a gentleman who worked at the hotel. He was from Mexico and said, I used to cross the border all the time, but it's so dangerous now. I don't do it anymore. And and he was from Mexico. And I thought, <laughs> oh man, if he's telling me that, I don't know. And so I was, I was pretty nervous about it. I was, I was, yeah, you, you got it. I was nervous. I just had this feeling that I was being watched and everybody said, well, if, when you cross the border, just don't stop for anything. And, and there's a, there's an app called iOverlander, which I know you've talked about on your show as well. And, and even it had quite a few warnings about, you know, oh, this scam goes on. The people try and tell you this person's broken down. Don't stop. Don't do this. And you start reading this stuff and it really starts working on your mind. And I'm usually not the type of person to, to worry too much. You know, I, I'm the person who thinks the State Department warnings are always way overblown and that people, people worry way too much about things that aren't going to ha- really going to happen to you. And as it ended up, it ended up being a non-event. I mean, nothing did happen to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's things that happen to people down there, but most people will probably be fine. Mm. Did, did that sort of relieve your your apprehension for for things as you as you found out as you rode away from the border? Because I know that you you said that you were sort of looking around at the border, you know, out of the corner of your eyes, yes. sort of thing, waiting for these people that are, are trying to spot these people that are watching you and set you up as a marker yes. down the road. But then you rode down the road and you found you were alone; no one was there. Yeah, nobody did, was there. I, I think I was just being a nervous Nelly. And does does that change though the way you feel from then on, or is or does it still sort of linger? I think it changed the way I felt. I wasn't quite so worried as I went further on. Um, I think you do still always have to be aware of your surroundings, what I call situational awareness. You have to always be aware of uh, talking to people and, and who you're talking to and if they have any um, ulterior motives. But uh, you don't need to be afraid. I think um, initially I was nervous and and, you know, maybe just a little bit afraid of the border crossing because there was so much crime down there. And it was known for that, uh, especially in that area, Laredo, Texas. But, um, you know, as I found out, people weren't watching me. Nobody really cared. And, and, you know, I, maybe they watched me and I just didn't know, but, uh, it didn't seem like anybody was watching me. Although I, I thought a couple of times someone was, but they probably weren't. It was just mm-hmm. my imagination. Um, um, but I'm also the same guy who thinks every uh, every noise I hear when I'm in a tent in the woods is a bear. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Which which of those noises are, I mean, at night, it's everything's always magnified too, isn't it? You know, it's a, yes. it's, a, it's funny how, um, it's interesting how at night we seem to be more vulnerable to to our fears, yes. even just to our mind. You know, when you're laying there and you're you're thinking about things, it's, yeah. it's, it's um. 
it's an odd time of the day, an odd time of life. Yes, your mind goes uh, goes crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why in the middle of the night. I think it's just got your mind doesn't have enough to occupy itself, so it makes stories up and tells yourself tells lies to itself. But but your normal defense mechanisms or, or whatever you want to call it, they would they would sort of say no, that that's that's not valid. They seem to sort of recede at night. <laughs> you know that that part of your judgment, that solid confidence that you have at yes. other times, tends to just recede, and you start to question everything. I agree. Yeah, and I don't know why. That would be an interesting psychological study. I'm sure they've done studies on it. I'm sure they it. have. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're traveling down um, in, in through Mexico at this point. You've got the pulmonary fibrosis. I don't, I don't know if you have that. That um, Do you have that diagnosed at that point? Is that, but you know that you're, yes. you're into something. Oh, you did. Okay. So yeah, at this point I did. Yeah. You know what you're dealing with and, and you know that it's going to make life difficult, obviously, if you have any sort of issues to deal with, like as far as like if you ride off road and you get yourself stuck, you have limited resources physical resources to get yourself going. D- does that play on your mind as, as you're riding? Um, it does in the mat, in the way that you just exercise good, ju- better judgment, make sure you're exercising good judgment and not getting yourself into situations you can't get out, which I think would apply to anybody, even if you're fully healthy, you know, if you're out when you're a solo rider and you're out, out by yourself somewhere, you don't put yourself into a situation you can't get yourself out of. And at this point, I wasn't really physically weak yet. I didn't, I, I still felt I had, I was still breathing well. Everything was mostly normal. Where I really got out of breath was when I exerted myself hard. So I knew I could prob- I could still pick up the bike. I knew that that wasn't a problem. Um, but what I didn't want to do was get myself into a situation where, say, you, you see these pictures on the internet where someone has their wheel half buried in, in sand or mud and they're, you know, sunk down into it so deep. And you think, how are they ever going to get themselves out of that? Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, that's the situation I need to avo- avoid because that would require so much physical effort to get myself out of it. It could leave me dangerously low on oxygen. So what I did was just stick to when I did off road, I, I would say, I would say more off pavement, not so much off road. They were roads. They were just dirt roads that weren't terribly difficult, no more difficult than the uh, fire roads that are ride around my house all the time. So you're just being more cautious, just to stuff that you may have written yeah. before and push your luck, which like you made a very good point there, though. I mean, when you're traveling, when you're even away from home, the farther you get away from home, the more uh, the more remote you are as far as your thought process or, or maybe with no people around, you tend to change what you're going to tackle. You know, I certainly do. You know, if you look at a trail and I know that you came to one trail uh, I saw a photograph of where um, you just said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this. You might've done it at home, yes. but you're not going to push right. your luck there. And, and and that makes sense. That's yeah. something you should do anyway, as you said, right. For travel. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's not, yeah, a, it's something that I've, something I've done all, all my, my whole life. I think uh, it again, dovetails into the flying. Part of my job as a pilot is risk assessment and looking at everything and saying, what is the risk to this? And what is the benefit? And mm-hmm. it's the same with riding. You look at it and what's the risk to go down this, trail, um, am I going to get to a, will I be able to turn around if I need to, or am I going to be stuck because the trail is so narrow that I can't turn around and I have to go forward. And 
do I want to put myself in that situation? Mm-hmm. Does your condition uh, affect things like altitude? And you mentioned about the difference when you're flying and how that can change things that you have mountains to go through. Does that affect you as you ride at this point? Yes. Um, so at this point where I really realized it, so when I had been in Europe over the summer, I'd actually done quite a few high altitude passes, the Stelvio Pass, the Furka Pass, things that went up to nine, 10,000 feet. And I hadn't really had any problem with them. Um, but unbeknownst to me, my uh, lung function had declined from that point. So now I'm in um, Mexico and I'm riding from, so when I crossed the border, I went through Monterey and then up to, uh, I believe it was called Saltillo, uh, which was a town at about 5,000 foot altitude. And I noticed my breathing was just a little more labored, again, only with exertion, say climbing a set of stairs or walking up a hill or something, not just sitting there. Um, then as I continue, I had originally planned to go down to, uh, San Miguel de, de Allende. I think I said that right. Uh, which was supposed to be a beautiful town around 7,000 feet altitude. So I'm cruising down the road that takes you there and I stop. I'm now at about 65, 6,700 feet altitude. And I get off the bike at a gas station to go in and I go in to use the bathroom. I come out and I'm just really breathing hard. And I always carry a uh, like I said, I've got an oximeter on my watch as well as a small one that goes on the tip of your finger to just do a quick uh, check. And, and I'm breathing hard and I look at it and it says 79, which is dangerously low. Mm. At that point, uh, according to my doctor, you're actually risking, you know, cardiac problems because your heart muscle is not getting enough oxygen to function properly. So it's not just that and you're thought, out of breath or not just that you're, you're yeah. having trouble moving. This is, this is serious. It's life-threatening. At this yeah, point. this could, this could be life-threatening. I'm looking at this going, that's not good. Mm. I thought initially, so I immediately, I look at the map. I always carry some paper maps with me as well because I'm just a bit uh, anal like that. Um, so <laughs> I look at the paper map and I go, well, it's, if I go this road, it's, it gets me down to 2,500 feet pretty quickly. And so I said, I changed the plans. I just said, you know what? I'm done with the high altitudes. I, I, it's, clearly it's not good for me. And so I started down, I, I got back down to 2,500 feet and felt much better. At that point, I realized I had to plan my route around the elevation. So for instance, Mexico City was out. The uh, pyramids around and Teotihuacan were, were out. Um, as much as I'd wanted to see those things, they just, it just wasn't possible. It was what it was. Does it change your thought process on the, on the trip at all? I mean, to me, there's a bunch of things in here. One is that it's eliminating places that you wanted to go. It's going to limit where you can ride, but also it, it just seems like it's advancing. It's getting worse. Yes. Yeah. You start, you worry about that, whether um, the disease is getting worse, but at the same time, you try not to worry about it because worrying is not going to do you any good. It's not going to change the, the facts of the situation. So um, for me, I found that the daily routine of traveling by motorcycle, it makes me happy and it allows me to free my mind of that worry because now I'm caught up in the, where am I going? My navigation, where am I going to go today? Where am I going to eat today? You know, um, is the bike, you know, doing well? Uh, every Just that routine of getting up, stretching, packing the bike, getting on the road, deciding where you're going to go. And 
to me, that's almost cathartic. It's, it's, it's like my therapy. I enjoy it and it frees my mind from the worry because what was going to happen with the disease was going to happen regardless of what, whether I worry about it or not. So the, the worry, I shouldn't say the worry, but the, the thoughts instead went into planning my ride and looking at the map and avoiding said, okay, well, Guatemala, Honduras, um, El Salvador, um, they all have some high elevations. They all have some places I would have loved to have gone, but that just wasn't a reality anymore. And my reality was I had to stick to the lower elevations and, and what I had to do was find the good in those places. It just, not a, you don't have to go to the mountains to have fun. There's plenty of beautiful places and things to see on the coasts or at lower elevations as well. Right. And, and sometimes I find that those mountain routes, they're the things that everybody does. If you look at the, if you look at uh, the websites and the, um, Instagram accounts and everybody, so many of the riders go to the same spots, whether it's the Salyar de Uni down in uh, Chile or, or Bolivia or, you know, the Atacama Desert and the big hand that's there in the desert. People all, you know, go to those same spots. I thought, well, maybe by traveling the coastal route, I'll be traveling a route that's less taken and I'll see something that, you know, do something that not everybody else is doing. Mm. You continued on to the, into Central America. What was that like? Um, it, I, I wish I had had more time. I had to be in Costa Rica to meet my wife who was flying in. So I, I kind of felt like I was pushing myself faster than I wanted to. But there were so many beautiful things that I would have liked to have spent more time in, and so many beautiful things that I did see. Um, Central America is fascinating. It's, it's, it's frustrating. It's fascinating. It's, <laughs> it's a little bit of everything. It's, uh, um, the speeds that you, you, you have to learn to slow down down there. You're not going to, the, what we're used to thinking of is how much we can travel in a day when we're in the U S or Canada is completely different down there. To me, all of a sudden a 200 mile day was like a really long day. Whereas before a 200 mile day in the U S was, eh, that's a pretty short, easy day. Mm -hmm. Speed limits are slower. You have to watch out for all sorts of things crossing the road in front of you, as well as potholes and speed bumps. And, and, uh, and really I enjoyed that. I enjoyed slowing it down and riding it 40, 45 miles an hour instead of 65 everywhere. It was nice. What was frustrating? G getting used to slowing down? Getting used to slowing down, orders are very frustrating. They're just, they seem to be always chaotic and confusing. And even people that I, I met other riders who spoke Spanish better than I do, even for them, it was chaotic and confusing and they spoke the language well. Um, it's just finding like, which office do you go to? And I would sometimes stand in line for a half hour only to find out I'd been standing in the wrong line for a half hour. And, mm. and uh, so, oh no, go to that line first and then come back here. Um, yeah, sometimes there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the way things were done, uh, at the borders. And then, uh, what was, uh, sometimes frustrating, just things like in Nicaragua, finding an ATM with, with money in it for some reason. And I don't I couldn't tell you the reasons their, their ATMs were perpetually out of money. And when they did get filled up with money, there would be a long, long line of people to get cash out. Mm. I don't know why. 
What, what about the bank? Did you try the bank? Um, that was the ATM at the bank. Yeah. Oh, I see. Uh, no, I didn't go in. I didn't go in any banks. I sometimes my, um, my poor Spanish is a bit, uh, makes me daunt, makes me a little bit intimidated to try going places where I might actually have to speak Spanish to people, which probably is what I should be doing to make, make my Spanish better. But I get, uh, I get embarrassed by my lack of uh, Spanish. So then I don't want to, uh, embarrass myself. Mm, Understandable for sure. Yeah. Yeah. uh, That, that makes sense. So, so it, um, when you're doing this, do you just park your bike? You, you just leave your bike parked somewhere and you head off to the, the machine? Um, I try and always park it within eyesight of myself, but if I can't, I would, uh, so a friend of mine who did, uh, Central and South America, she, uh, did it solo. And she told me there's like an unstated contract that if you buy something from someone, they'll watch your bike. And so I would try and if there was a street vendor selling water or something like that, I'd just buy a bottle of water and then kind of say, Hey, do you mind if I leave my bike here for a minute? You know, and that always seemed to work out pretty well. Mm. And it makes you feel confident when you're walking away. Yeah, exactly. Cause there's, it's like that, set contract. I bought something from you. Now you're going to watch my bike for me. And, and it was, I think it's almost like an honor thing. Like they're not going to let anybody touch your bike or that would reflect poorly on them. Mm-hmm. What did you do yeah. with the Darien Gap? Um, so I never actually crossed it, uh, because I, I ended up having to make the decision to finish my ride, uh, while the bike was, uh, still in Panama. But what I was going to do was fly the bike to Peru, to Lima, whereas most riders will go to Colombia and then continue on, which is what I, I really wanted to do because Colombia is supposed to be beautiful and fascinating as well as Ecuador, but both are of very high elevations. Um, mm-hmm. To go through both of them, I was looking at 10,000 foot uh, passes. I was looking at, uh, and I wasn't so much worried. I thought, well, if it was just a pass that I had to go up and over, but could come back down to a lower elevation fairly quickly. I was comfortable with that. What I was more worried about was spending days at 10,000 feet and what that would do to my oxygen saturations, especially if there was a problem, like I broke down and then I had to spend time you know, changing the tire or, or fixing, you know, fixing the bike or doing something at a high altitude. So I just decided I'm going to have to forego those and have the bike shipped directly to Lima. And then from Lima, I could stay mostly on the coast all through Peru and Chile and Argentina and uh, stay at, I think the higher, highest elevation that I found going through there on the roads that I was looking at was maybe 4,000 feet, which I thought was doable for me. One of the challenges you had uh, was carrying the medication. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, so the medication, I probably take... <laughs> And this is a guy who used to hate to take any, put any, uh, medicines in his body before. And now I take, I'm trying to think probably 15 different pills a day. Oh, wow. Uh, one of them is, uh, get enough of, uh, the, the dosage I'm supposed to get. There's three fairly large pills in the morning and three of the same fairly large pills at night. And then there's some other medicines, but the the problem is, those all fill up. I mean, I had a fairly large baggie full of, you know, um, prescription medications. And that was just for about 45 days worth. So if I had had to take six months worth this trip, 
it would have maybe taken up half of a pannier. Um, so that just wasn't possible from a logistical standpoint, as well as the fact that the insurance just doesn't want to give you more than 45 days of supply of medicine at once for whatever reason. And they won't send the medications to uh, foreign post offices or stuff. They, they will only send it to your, to your home. So some of them I do through a mail order because it's cheaper. Um, one of the medications that I take is, um, $13,000 for a month is what the, is what insurance, uh, is what the drug company charges my insurance. Last, last year alone, my, just my medications that I took, I was looking at my insurance and they billed my insurance $164,000 for oh, my medications. Man. Yeah. So you can imagine you don't want to lose these things because they're like gold. Yeah. Um, so I was afraid of having my, I thought, well, we, we looked at different things. I told my wife, said, well, maybe you can get them and then send them to me. And I thought, no, if it gets lost in the mail, I'm screwed because insurance is not going to be understanding of that. They're not going to say, oh yeah, we'll just pay for another 13,000. Yeah, yeah, they're not going right. to do that. No. And then we thought, my, what we thought about, well, what if my wife flies down and brings them with her? And then I thought, well, if she's going through airport customs and they search her bags and they find a bunch of pills that aren't in her name, yeah. that could be a problem. We don't want her ending up in jail. So we ended up just deciding the best thing to do is just for me to fly home and renew my meds whenever I come home. That gets expensive though, having to fly back home. Well, the good thing is, even though I'm on disability, I'm still fully employed by United. So I still have all my flight benefits. So I still get to travel for free. I still have my insurance. I still have all those things. I'm, I'm considered an employee up until my mandatory retirement age of 65. So I've got 10 more years and, uh, I'm still, I'm on disability. I get paid a disability insurance and, and, uh, I'm still fully employed technically. Oh, I see. And how does that work? Do you fly on any airline for free? Um, on other airlines, we get a courtesy and they give us a discount, but, uh, only on my own airline do I get completely free travel. Oh, I see. I pay the I pay the uh, taxes is what I pay. So everybody pays a d departure tax, which is built into your your ticket price when you buy a ticket. Um, so those I would just they are parsed out and um, just charged to me, and I just pay those. Mm. So the the pills, the, the, these medications that you have to take, did you have to research them in advance? You must have to make sure that you're not taking anything illegal over a border. I'd like to say I did, but I didn't really. I mean, they're all, they're all prescription medications. So yeah, I know, but you can get a prescription for, uh, let me try to think of something. Okay. Marijuana, for instance, and take it to a, a, a border crossing and be caught with that. And it doesn't matter whether it's a prescription or not. They don't recognize it. That is true. And I did not, I did not research these. These are, these are such rare medicines, uh, because pulmonary fibrosis is a fairly rare disease that, uh, I, I wasn't really worried about it. I just figured, well, I need these things to live and, you know, who's going to give me a problem over that? And in reality, nobody ever even checked. I don't, not once did I get searched or asked about anything at a border. They're all in prescription bottles. And to me, I, I just figured in my mind that was good enough. Um, I probably should have researched it more, but I can't say I did. You spent most of your life traveling around by plane, obviously flying place to place yes. and, and dealing with uh, going into different countries and going through borders and cross customs, all that. Do you find that you were treated much differently as a pilot than you are as a motorcyclist? Um, yes. 
So as a crew member, there's usually a special line at the airports that we go through. And airport borders are much less chaotic than land borders. Airport borders are pretty straightforward. You get in line and everybody just follows everybody else and you go to the right booths and you go through. And even as a passenger, it's it, it might be time consuming, but it's fairly easy. Um, land borders just seem to be more chaotic and you don't get that. There is no crew line. I'm not a crew member. I'm just another person at the border trying to get through from A to B. And so um, it, it was more time consuming and it requires a lot more patience. As a, as a pilot, that was my job. And so I would get frustrated when it would take a long time because they were cutting into my my break time, my rest time when I got somewhere I wanted to, or when I was coming home and it took a long time in the US, I was, I was off work. I wasn't getting paid anymore. So I just wanted to get through and done. Mm -hmm. And I considered that, Hey, this is my work. Why are you hassling me for my work? When I was in Central America, I knew I wasn't at work and I really learned the value of patience. I just, it didn't bother me. It took, I think my longest border crossing was about five hours. And I know some riders will get, and, and, and other people at borders will get frustrated and could maybe get snippy with the officials and stuff. And to me, I didn't see any benefit in that. It was just going to make my life harder. So I just learned to sit back and relax and read a book <laughs> while I was waiting, you know. Are you a patient person? Would you have been described as a patient person before this? Um, I think if you asked my kids, they'd say no. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's, it's a, everybody's a mixed bag. I think I can be patient when it calls for it. And there are times when I can be very impatient. You get me in a line of cars and on a freeway and, and I can be very impatient if I've got somewhere to go. <laughs> right. But you get me on it when I'm on a trip like that, where I'm not really in a hurry or anything and I've got time then I don't care. I can be very, very patient then. Mm. I never made, I, I learned not to make, I rarely made reservations at hotels anymore for that night because I didn't know if I, I didn't want to be beholden. You know, I didn't want to make a reservation that was non-refundable and then feel like I had to push myself to get to that place. So I just always felt like, well, if this border takes me longer, I'll just stay at a, a you know, a closer, closer in town than where I had planned to go to for tonight. This being your, your bucket list trip, how was it measuring up when you got to Panama? Um, it was measuring up. It's been very enjoyable. I really loved it. I'd say my only regret was that I just hadn't had more time to spend in some of the places because of some of the, you know, the doctor's appointments and some of the, the things that I had to deal with that I think other motorcycle travelers didn't have to deal with the flying home for the appointments, the flying home to get the drugs. Um, that sounds like I'm doing something illegal when I say that, but, um, uh, you know, um, just those kind of things, there were doctor's appointments that just couldn't be missed. I had to be, I had to go to them because I knew if I missed them, it would take two months to get another appointment. And I, I didn't, you know, I needed to make sure I was keeping up on what the disease was doing. So from that standpoint, um, it was a bit of a frustrating bucket list trip because I wasn't able to do the things I had originally imagined I would do. But from the standpoint of how did it stack up, even doing what I was able to do, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I just, I enjoy traveling. I enjoy being on the road. That that routine, um, seeing the world from the saddle of the motorcycle is just, to me, the best way to see it. Mm. 
Interesting you say time. I mean, I think, I think you said it a couple of times now, actually, about time. And, and yeah, I mean, you're not talking about your motorcycle. You're not talking about your gear. You're not talking about the hotels you stayed in or the, you know, whatever accommodation you had. It's about time. Yeah, it is. It's about having the time to enjoy the moment that you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there were, there were other riders. There was uh, one gentleman I met. Uh, he was from Colorado riding a uh, DR650 and he was retired and didn't have any timeline. And I was a little jealous of him because he could just take as much time as he wanted. In fact, there's a couple of riders I've met. Actually, I haven't met them in person, but through uh, WhatsApp chat groups and things like that. And, uh, and they're just doing really interesting, slow travel, seeing everything they can. Like one of them was, you know, in Mexico for two whole months and I was in Mexico for 10 days. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I just, just remember thinking, wow, to be able to spend that amount of time in Mexico exploring the ins and outs of every little place would have been really amazing. What is the trip about for you? Is it about the ride? Is it about being on the bike? Or is it about the bike taking you to these places? What is it? It's a little of both. I, I'm more of a... So some travelers, some motorcycle travelers will spend a lot of time off the bike and a lot of time going to side attractions off the off the beaten path. And I, I like to ride the roads that are off the beaten path. But for me, it's about... It's a lot about the ride and seeing what I see from the motorcycle mm-hmm. more than getting off the motorcycle and walking around. Now, at night, I'll walk around towns. And when, whenever I stop every night, I like to explore my, my immediate environment and see what the town is like and go experience some good food and, you know, the people. Um, like we talked about earlier in, in the interview, my immune system is lower than everybody else's. So I'm a little bit wary about being around crowds. So I don't, I don't go to bars. I don't go to, if a restaurant's too crowded, I won't go in there because I just, I don't want to be in that environment around those many people and expose myself to something that may possibly, you know, make me sicker. But I still like walking around the town and seeing all those things. Um, But I don't, but once I'm on the ride during the day, I don't get off the bike that much. I like to just ride. And if I want to see something, I'll ride down this road and take a look at it or that road and see what, see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Did anything on this trip make you sort of change the way you looked at it? Because this was your bucket list trip that you, that you were on. Did it change uh, your, your view on it or make you understand something a little bit different about you or the way you ride or the, or, or what you wanted to experience on this trip? That's a good question. Um, I think that I discovered that as a rider, I am more like I, like I just talked about more of a see things from the bike type of traveler. And that tends to mean that I ride through places maybe a little faster than other people do not faster as far as like I'm going, you know, 60 versus 50, but faster than that. I just tend to transit the countries a little faster than other people do because I'm not getting off the bike and exploring as much. And and I don't think I realized I was that type of rider as much until then. I think I had more of a vision of myself as a, an intrepid explorer. And it turns out that I'm more of a intrepid motorcyclist than I am 
the the full full on explorer and, and hiking. I'm not the guy who's gonna go hike that uh, to the top of that waterfall in my motorcycle boots. You know, I'm the guy who's gonna look at the motor waterfall from the bottom. You know, get off my bike and walk closer to it and take some pictures and then get back on my bike and keep keep riding. And I don't. I don't know if that's the way I always was or if that's because of the disease, because I can't hike to the top of that waterfall anymore. Physically, it it's that exertion that really, really runs me down and fatigues me. Mm. And walking up up sets of big stairs, uh, like climbing a pyramid at a at a uh a Mayan ruins is hard for me now. It's just physically very, very difficult and it takes a lot out of me. So I tend to not do it anymore because it's just so hard. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that style of travel. I mean, you know, some no. people will think that there's only one way to do it, that you must get off the bike and leave it and, and walk around a place for three days. It's not for everybody. I mean, everyone has a different idea of what they, what they want exactly. and what they enjoy doing. Exactly. And I think we should all do what we enjoy doing it, what we enjoy doing, because otherwise, if you're doing it the way that you think other people think you should do it, you're not being true to yourself. For mm -hmm. instance, a lot of people think you should mostly camp near adventure riding. Well, I'm to that point in my life where I don't really enjoy sleeping on hard ground anymore. And <laughs> I like a nice, comfortable hotel and a hot shower at the end of the day. And and that's just me. And I don't make any apologies for it. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry about bears at that point either. That is true. Very true. <laughs> or pumas in South America. Right. Exactly. Which is worse <laughs> than a bear in my mind. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. You did mention that you, you got to Panama. You didn't do the Darien Gap because you had to go back. What happened? So when I got down to Panama, I had to make a decision. At the time, there was, um, there, there still is, there's a lot of unrest in Peru. Peru had been fairly peaceful for a long time. And then they had a uh, situation where their president um, had been arrested and um, a new president had taken over. And the president that had been arrested had been kind of a a man of the people. A lot He was uh, supported by a lot of the, the indigenous population and more of the poor population in Peru. And they were very upset at this. So they were having these huge protests, roadblocks, um, at the, at that time, I think 17 protesters had been killed by the police and military. Um, and they were blocking a lot of the roads to, that were heading from Peru down to Chile. And so there was a lot of talk. There's, there was a WhatsApp chat group of motorcycles heading South, probably a hundred, hundred and 150 people on it. And a lot of talk on there about people who couldn't get through the roadblocks were stuck in hotels in Peru and couldn't get south. And I remember thinking, well, if I go down there and I get stuck very long, you know, what's going to happen? Am I going to miss my, my weather window for Ushuaia versus, you know, what, what's going to, it was just such an unknown. So I had to make the decision. Do I get to Panama and go straight to Lima or do I take some time off and see if things die down? So what I decided to do was to go home uh, it was right, it was probably around the 20th of December and the holidays were coming up. I thought, well, this makes a good little break. I got to, I'll go home and I'll just spend the holidays at home. And after the new year, I'll come back down, um, and have my bike, uh, shipped. So I, I went, got to Panama, uh, the guys at, uh, Overland Embassy who were going to ship my bike for me, they got the bike all packed up and ready. And they said, you can just leave it 
right here. Give us the word when you're ready and we'll ship it to Lima. So I go home. While I was home, probably in the airport or on the plane, somewhere along the way, I caught the flu, a respiratory flu, and it really took me down. Ended up in the hospital on Christmas Eve for a couple of days mm. um, in Virginia. And uh, my, my oxygen levels were really low. I get out of the hospital, though. I'm still, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I'm still thinking like, I'm going to recover from this quickly. I'll go down and finish my ride. And I'm, that's what I'm telling myself and everybody. And that's what I really believed at that point. But now we get into January, we're into maybe the second week of January. I'm still just physically very, very weak. I can see, I can even see in the mirror where my muscles have atrophied. I can see where I, I just don't have the strength. My body looks like it at age 20 years and in the last two months, it's, it's, it was crazy. I'd lost probably 15 pounds and uh, just, just, started thinking like, is this a good idea to continue? And I started wondering, started doubting myself. And I had to really assess things and think, do I continue or not? And then on top of that, I had my doctors telling me, we don't want you in some remote part of South America. And then what if you get the flu again and need medical care? And it's several days before you get to a place, you know, that could put your life in danger. So I'm considering that, but again, I tend to be one of those people who thinks like, ah, eh, they're, they're just, they're, they're being extra cautious. It's probably not that bad. The deciding factor for me was whether or not I could, I could self-rescue. I think when you're adventure riding, whether I'm riding trails 10 miles from my house or whether I'm riding in South America, you need to be able to get yourself out of situation, all but the most dire of situations. I've got a Garmin in reach most riders do these days and it's got the SOS button. But in my mind, the SOS button is only if I've fallen and broken a leg or something and can't get myself out of there, something that was not to be expected. But when you're riding, you're going to drop a bike. You're going to have mechanical breakdowns. You're going to get stuck in sand or mud. Those are things that you should expect and you should be able to get yourself out of. And I just felt like I couldn't get myself out of those situations anymore. And that was the ultimate deciding factor was that if I can't rescue myself from a simple situation, then I shouldn't be doing this. It's not only putting my life in danger, it could potentially be putting some rescuer's life in danger. And that's not fair to anybody. Mm -hmm. So I made the decision not to continue. And once I did that, <laughs> strangely enough, like two days before I was feeling kind of good and I thought, well, maybe I can continue this. And I had told them to go ahead and start to get the bike ready and to ship it to Lima. They had actually started, I called them. I said, hey, stop, stop. I've changed my mind. Don't do it. I don't think it's a good idea to continue. And he goes, well, we already sent the bike off last night. Oh, I said, oh. No. And, I, and I'm thinking, how? And now it's going to be really expensive to get the bike back from Peru. Well, it turns out they, they shipped it on DHL. And DHL has a hub in Miami. So it actually, the bike actually goes to Miami first. Then it was going to go to Peru. And I said, and I found that out. And he said, can you stop it in Miami? He goes, I don't know. I've never had to do that before. Let me try. And so they actually went to work and worked pretty hard on it. And they got the bike to be held in Miami. So I ended up just having to drive down there and pick up my bike. Oh, wow. So, and you got the bike back now. It's at home. It's at home now. Yeah. I, uh, and even then I was, I was debating, do I fly down and ride the bike home? But even then, it's, I was still pretty weak at the time. I thought, uh, I don't, I just, 
don't really want to do that. It's, and it's not the actual riding of the bike that's hard for me. Just sitting on the bike as, as any rider knows is, is, is fairly easy. When you're riding on a easy road, just sitting there, there's no real effort involved. It's, for me, it was always just getting ready. It's getting all the clothes on, getting the boots on, pulling everything on. Most people, and, and before I got sick, that's pretty easy. Now it leaves me huffing and puffing. I'm, I'm really like, like short of breath, just pulling my clothes on and getting the helmet on and getting everything on. And so I thought, well, I don't want to be on a plane and I don't want to, don't feel strong enough to really ride the bike back even from Miami on, on good roads. And I thought I'll just take my truck down in a trailer and pull it back, which is what I ended up doing. You mentioned when I asked about bucket list, you mentioned about finishing this trip. You said that that's sort of on your, your bucket list. You know, you'd like to finish this trip. Yet, I mean, I can even hear as you're talking right now, there's sometimes where your, your breath is a little labored. Is that a reality? Are you going to get to finish this trip? It's a good question. Um, I like to be a realistic person, but I like to be an optimistic person as well. I don't think the two uh, are mutually exclusive. I think you can be realistically optimistic. So when I look at that, I'm feeling much, much better today than I was in the beginning of January. Mm -hmm. Do I still labor to breathe at times? Yes. I still sometimes breathe, you know, get short of breath just taking a shower. But overall, I'm much better. Um, I haven't had another... They call them pulmonary function tests where it measures your lung function done uh, since then. So I'm going to see what the next one comes up. It's probably unrealistic to think that in any way this disease, well, I know it's unrealistic, will reverse itself. However, the underlying autoimmune disease sometimes can be causing flare-ups in your lungs, which are not causing scarring. So what remains to be seen at this point is whether the damage that was done from having the flu was permanent, in, in other words, caused scarring, or whether it was a temporary thing and it will go away. And only time will tell that. So if enough time goes by and it turns out I regained some of my lung function and it wasn't permanent scarring, there's a possibility maybe I could do it. The other possibility is, and I was just out at the University of Virginia Lung Transplant Center is a lung transplant down the road. That's really the only possibility for uh, anybody with pulmonary fibrosis. Um, eventually, they'll either die or need a lung transplant. So the doctors, uh, it's just, it, it's a long evaluation process. It's a three-month process to see if I'm even qualified. But so far, they say I look like an ideal candidate because of my relatively young age with this disease, as well as um, what my overall fitness was before getting sick. Mm -hmm. um, and they say it looks like it'll be one to two years uh, before I'll need a lung transplant if the disease continues on its current trajectory. I'm hoping they're wrong and it'll be much longer because a lung transplant is the last resort option. But should I need one, my goal would be to be the first lung transplant recipient to ever do that ride. So, and I think that's, Mm -hmm. realistically optimistic. There have been lung transplant recipients who have run marathons. So if they can run a marathon, I think I could probably ride a bike to the uh, bottom of South America. Mm. So you're, you're seeing a future here. I mean, you're, you know, you're not giving up on the whole ride thing. No, you can't, you can't give up on things because 
I always like to say when life throws you curveballs, you got to keep swinging because you're going to miss 100% of the things you don't swing at. So you might as well just keep swinging because what's your alternative to curl up in a ball and do nothing and feel sorry for yourself? I, I That's just not me. I can't do that. I have mm-hmm. to, I like to have goals. I like to have things to look forward to. And it gives me, um, it, it, having a positive outlook like that helps my, um, my mental well-being. It makes me feel better and, and I don't worry about it. And I think, why not? Why can't I be the first person to ride a motorcycle to South America who's had a double lung transplant if it comes to that? Mm-hmm. Why Why not? The question isn't why or, or can you? The question is, why can't you? Is it going to be easy? No. Is it, is it, do I, do I, am I going to fool myself into thinking they, they already told me a lung, lung transplant will probably be the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Recovery is two to three months alone. Um, just, just to get to a point where you're, you know, independent again. Um, and then after that, you have to take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life. You have to worry about, and those anti-rejection drugs are more immune suppressant drugs. So you have to worry about getting sick for the rest of your life. And there's a lot of complications. So this is something you're going to deal with in one way or another for the rest of your life. Yeah. A, a lung transplant is not a panacea. It is not going to solve everything. There are a ton of complications as they made sure that I knew when I went for my initial evaluation. They wanted me to be fully educated that this was not going to solve everything, and that the average lifespan of lung transplant recipients is only six years after the transplant. Um, it's it's a, probably the least successful of major organ transplants, but some people live a lot longer. You know, an average is just, it's just that it's an average. Some people live much longer. Some people live much less. Um, I'd like to be one of those people who lives much longer. How has motorcycling and and the way you like to ride and exploring by motorcycling, um, how has that affected or, or how has that helped shape the way you've dealt with finding out about the disease and dealing with the problems, et cetera? It's kind of given me a goal um, to keep riding, I guess, if you could say that's my my goal. I mean, I have the goal of riding to the tip of South America, but I also have the goal of riding for as long as I can ride. And that gives me something forward to look forward to. I, I, I love riding. I It's an absolute passion of mine. And getting out there and being able to do it gives me something to work towards. I, I go, I'm back to going to the gym again now. I go to a really small gym here where there's thankfully not many people ever there. So, um, but I, I go twice a week. I'm trying to work out and I'm starting start out with light weights and I'm building myself back up again to build my strength up to keep. And, and so, and that's all because of the motorcycling, because I want to be able to pick up the bike. I want to be able to ride a, a tough single track trail again on, you know, on my smaller bike. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to do that thing. And those all require, physical fitness. And so I, I'm back to walking again, three, four miles a day and lifting weights and doing those things again. And now I have to do them where I, where I carry a little oxygen concentrator with me, but okay. I didn't want to because I was vain, but now I have to. And, and it actually allows me to work out at a higher level by having, having that oxygen. And I've, I've actually figured out a way to carry it with me on the bike. I, I, carry the concentrator and one of the panniers on the bike. And then I, fi- I figure if, okay, if I get to a point where I'm stuck and I'm exerting myself and I'm 
really getting breathless, I can put that thing on. I carry it in a, a Moscow Moto donated a backpack to me. They're really cool about, and, uh, I, I modified the backpack to uh, carry that concentrator because it has to breathe. And, uh, I wear that. And so if I'm, if I'm having to pull and push on the bike and it's stuck somewhere, I can put that on and wear it and that'll help me. Is that plugged into the bike? It's got a battery. The battery lasts pretty long and I carry an extra battery with me, but I also have a, it's got a 12 volt adapter that made to plug into a, like a car cigarette lighter or something. But then I've got one of those that I um, can plug into the SAE plug on my bike. So mm-hmm. yeah, it could. I haven't ever, I've tried it in my garage. I haven't uh, played around with it on the trail because I don't need it when I'm just actually riding the bike. It's more there for if I get in a situation where I need the oxygen. You, you mentioned about, you know, you, you can't just roll into a ball and, and just and just give up. But it, you could, you know, I mean, because one other way to look at it would be to, you know, say, oh, I, I was a pilot and I had this this life that was doing this and, and now I can no longer do that. And it's just, it's incredible that you haven't taken that path, you know, that you've taken a completely different path that using motorcycling as your focus, using something that you can do as your focus to keep going. Yeah, I I think that's that's just kind of who I am. I can't sit around and feel sorry for myself. I mean, I'm not saying I never have a down day because like everybody, you're, you're going to wake up sometimes and, you know, think there's times when I just think how much, yeah, I, I have lost a lot. I've lost my, my career and, and part of my income and, and, you know, my, my health, my ability to run and to hike and to do the things I want. But then mm-hmm. I think, but I've still got so many things. I've got, you know, a beautiful wife and family and, I've got, you know, I'm lucky in a lot of ways. And that was one thing that the the trip really showed me. There are so many people that have so much less than I do, even with as much as I've lost. When you get down to Nicaragua, which I believe is the poorest country in Central America, and you see how little people have, it's hard to feel sorry for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, and, and so for me, it's always about finding the silver lining and finding what I can do. And I I even told my wife, I said, well, it gets to the point where I can't ride anymore. I like trains. Maybe I'll get some model trains and enjoy that. (laughs) I don't know. You know, (laughs) I'll find something. I'll always find something. No, it makes sense. Yeah. It, um, it, It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Have you learned something through this ordeal that sort of come out to you and that you, that you didn't really recognize you didn't know before that you would pass on to other people that, that will be listening to this? Hmm. Let me think on that a second. Um, I mean, there's so many things I've learned and to narrow it down to just one or two things. I, I think the biggest thing is having well, one thing, okay, I'll tell you. One thing that I put on a post I made on Instagram a while back was kindness. And it's not that I wasn't a kind person, but like we talked about patience, sometimes I was a little impatient. And I would get frustrated at times before all this. And now I've just found sit back, be kind to people, and it will pay dividends. You know, I, I watched a gentleman, I think this all occurred to me when I was in a, at the airport in Panama, getting ready to come home. And there was an older gentleman and he was just so nasty to the, to the security personnel who were just doing their jobs. And he was so upset that they were taking his liquids from him 
And he was being a real, a real horse's ass, excuse the expression. And I said something to him. I said, they're just doing their jobs. Hmm. You know, why don't you just give them a break? And he turned and was nasty to me. I just said, well, you can be that way if you want to be, but I'm not going to be. And I didn't say anything else back to him. I just said, okay, you know, he's clearly a miserable human being. And there's no benefit in not being kind to people. And in watching and seeing all the people down there who need kindness in their lives, I think that if we could all just practice more kindness in this life towards everybody around us, even people who are different and think differently than us, this world would be such a better place. Brett, thank you very much for telling your story, and uh, I look forward to hearing when you get to Ushuaia. Thank you very much, Jim. It was very nice talking to you, and uh, I'll definitely let you know once I get down there. was speaking with Brett Anderson from his home in Hot Springs, Virginia. Now, part of this bucket list trip for Brett, he also had another goal, and that was to raise funds for the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, the disease he's diagnosed with. And this is to help aid in research and and better understand the disease. He set up a website before he left, and and so far he's managed to raise over $15,000. That didn't fully reach the goal. He's, He's aiming higher than that. So, If you're inclined to help out a bit for Brett's cause, his website tells the story. And when you you click on the donate button, it takes you through to the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. So you can put the donation directly to them. His website is lastbigride.org. And of course, we've got that links as well as some photos from Brett's adventure in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Just before we finish up here, can I ask you something? Can I ask you to consider something, if you're not doing it already? Adventure Rider Radio and Raw are built on a model of having some advertising and then listener support to make the whole thing work. 
we'd really appreciate it if you drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. It's a bunch of different ways you can do it. You know, anything $10 or more gets you a sticker from your pannier, your toolbox. Anything $50 or more gets you a, a shout out on our raw show. That's the other show that we do that comes out once a month. All that information is available at our website. You'll see it right on the main page when you go in. But we could really use your support. I, I appreciate it if you just go have a look and consider it. Thank you so much for that. Time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next week. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Nick Sanders from Wales in Great Britain, and it's a pleasure talking to you all.